0: history History. through the eyes of those who lived it. This is Hometown Heroes, presented on the air and online by Provident Payments, proudly honoring the men and women whose service and sacrifice have secured our freedom. Now, the host of Hometown Heroes, Paul Leffler.
1: Welcome to another edition of Hometown Heroes, the program that reminds you no matter where you live in this great country of ours, no matter how big or how small your hometown might be, there are stories there that should not go untold. If you've listened to the show for any length of time, you know they don't have to go untold. And perhaps you'll have an opportunity this week as your family gathers for the holidays to ask a few questions of some of the elders in your family. If you're patient enough to listen and show them you care, you never know what they might share. Our goal has always been to honor our veterans for their service and sacrifice to preserve their stories so we never forget the price has been paid for our freedom. And in that process, not only are we educated, not only are we entertained, but so often we find ourselves truly touched and genuinely inspired by these stories from our greatest generation. Over the years, we've heard many a World War II veteran bring up memories from wartime Christmases on the radio. From Christmas plays and POW camps to special Christmas dinners on the front lines to waking up on a hospital ship on Christmas after surviving the most devastating typhoon in history, those memories provide perspective as we gather with our loved ones this holiday season. Today's program will be a special Christmas edition, and I don't mean to make it too heavy for you right out of the gate, but to underscore how those of us who didn't serve sometimes can't imagine how something might affect someone who did, we're going to begin with a haunting memory shared by Navy veteran Mike Wanty, who survived countless close calls aboard the destroyer USS Lardner. Are there some times that you look back on when you were on the Lardner? And you remember what happened and you can picture it in your mind and you ask yourself, how did I survive that? Or maybe say, hey, I was pretty fortunate to survive that.
2: There is one, and I don't like to talk about it. And if I do tell you, I may crack in talking about it. But I'll tell you, it happened at Christmas time. This is why I hate Christmas.
1: Still today, 70 years later, you hate Christmas.
2: In a way, I don't know if I can tell you or not. Mm. It happened at Bougainville. We helped. The Marines go ashore, and then the bodies started coming back, and they would come back in baskets. And one of uh, You shouldn't have done this. This boy, they put on the wardroom table. He had no arms, no legs, and he's burned over most of his body. And all we could do was give him morphine, and he wanted to hear White Christmas all the time. It was a record to play over and over and over and over. And it took us about 10 hours, I guess, to get to a, a forward hospital on La Lavella. And the doctor said to me, he says, I won't let him die, Mike. I'll get him ashore. And he did, but he died once he got there. But he didn't die on the ship. I've always felt bad. I never got his name or his father and mother. I've always wanted to write to her. He was about 17, Marine, nice young guy. I...
1: It's okay. I'm sorry, Mike.
2: You don't realize. I happens if I ever think about it. in Christmas time, it's double. They keep playing white Christmas. I've gotten used to it. But to talk about it, it's different.
1: But over the years, if you're somewhere and White Christmas comes on... You never
2: can forget
1: it. You said your whole life you've wished you had gotten his name so you could have written his mother. What do you think you would have written to his mother? What would you have told her? That he was brave
2: and he thought of his family. He was a farm boy, I think from Ohio, I don't know. But I've always regretted that I didn't get his name and address.
1: Believe it or not, Mike Wanty isn't the only World War II vet to have shared on this program that that particular song, White Christmas, which gave hope to so many servicemen abroad, brought back nothing but horrific memories because of the timing of when it came on the radio and what they happened to be witnessing at the time. When it comes to Christmas memories in World War II, many of the most prominent center around Christmas 1944 because it was the thick of the Battle of the Bulge. We've met several who were captured during that time period, including Leonard Cosby, who on Christmas Eve 1944 was manning an Allied roadblock on frozen terrain along the perimeter of the Battle of the Bulge.
3: Uh, Some German soldiers sneaked up and started shooting at us They couldn't get a direct shot into where we were, so they were shooting at an angle. And uh, on our right side was a wooden, kind of like a garage, where they had parked something inside the garage. This German was shooting at us. They had some tracer bullets in with their ammunition, and the tracer bullet would hit the side of this wooden garage and stick there and fry. They didn't last long, just a few seconds, and they went out. That was the only time they came up there attempting to shoot us or shoot at us. And to this day, I can't understand why uh, they didn't throw a hand grenade or something in there at us.
1: You're not complaining that they didn't? Oh, no.
3: No, fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, I made it through in it, fine shape. Mm-hmm. And uh, then there's additional vehicles coming up the road. So we had two bazooka shells. We had already used one. So now it's time to use the other one, and I moved up on the ridge and loaded the bazooka gun and fired it, and uh, when a bazooka shell hits metal, out the other side of the metal will be flying a molting metal, and when I fired the bazooka gun, I could hear some German soldiers down there screaming and hollering, and after that, uh, we didn't hear much of anything from them. Uh, There was no uh, firing at us or anything. Mm -hmm. And I guess that must have been about, oh, maybe 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning.
1: And how many people are with you here?
3: There's three of us in that roadblock.
1: Three of us. So this is not a well-fortified position. You don't have a lot of reinforcements. You guys are out there on your own.
3: Right. And and there's really not much of anything around us to protect us either.
1: And you have no idea how many Germans are out there? No. So it's 3 in the morning.
3: And uh, one of the fellows uh, became excited, and I guess he was a little bit hysterical. He said, boy, well, said I we're going to have to do something. It's going to be daylight here before you know it, and when it gets light, the Germans are going to come in here and kill us all. He said, we're going to have to give up. And I said, well, well that might be all right. But I said, who's going to walk out in the middle of the road to give up? Mm-hmm. and I was standing down near the uh, front of our position there, and this guy just pushed me right out in the middle of the road. So I started yelling, comrade, comrade. And, and this
1: is about daybreak or what?
3: Well, I'd say it's about 3 o'clock or, or 3.30 in the morning.
1: So you didn't want to wait till the sun came up? No. Mm-hmm.
3: No, he was afraid that they would come in there and tear us to pieces. Mm-hmm. So uh, fortunately... I don't know why the Germans didn't start shooting, but they took all three of us as prisoners and took us down to a German officer who questioned us as to what organization we were in, what unit we were in, and uh, how long we had been there.
1: Not very long. No. <laughs> didn't have much to tell them, did you? Not that you would have anyway.
3: No, Well, I'm sure they knew mm-hmm. the... Uh, organization we were in what division and all
1: emotionally what was that like cuz here you have put in all this time and training not to mention your brother going in with you and you're going over there to win a war and now all of a sudden you've had this intense experience where you didn't know if you were gonna die and here you are surrendering not knowing what the future holds that that seems like an awful lot to try to process in a nineteen-year-old brain
3: well Uh, I didn't know what to expect from the Germans or where they would take us, but they uh, had us marching for a ways, and then they put us on a trucks and hauled us back into Germany.
1: Where he would spend the next four months in captivity, and he was not alone. More than 23,000 Americans became prisoners of war during the Battle of the Bulge, and the division with the most, the 106th Infantry Division. Mac McMullen was one of them.
4: We were captured late in the evening, or, and marched down the hill, and they got a, a little town called B-E-L-I-E-F or something like that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I congregated us there, put us in column, and so many abreast, and, and started down there. Didn't stay abreast for very long. It was just mass. At least you yeah. see in the movies, you know, confusion.
1: And was there talk among your ranks of guys trying to go out on their own, make a break for it, avoid Capture and captivity?
4: Not at that point. We weren't sure. We didn't know what we were doing. We mm-hmm. were just uh, surrounded. That's the night I, I got my feet wet. I got both feet wet, and I didn't have combat boots because they didn't have my size. <laughs> so I got the regular gi- regular shoe, and I got and tried to go through a little stream where you'd jump across I got both feet wet and got them frozen. Mm-hmm. And uh, later on, as things went on, because we walked that particular time, we walked in the middle of that afternoon, all that night, all the next day, and then uh, before we stopped. And by the time we got there, my feet were frozen. And uh, uh, I, I was at the point where uh, this is where I, didn't, I couldn't make it anymore. And this is when I I, was, I, I went to church and Sunday school and all that. But I, I was one of these guys that prayed for a bicycle or something like that. And I, <laughs> I, did, I was holding back, saving that, I guess. I didn't know it. But I prayed, that, just give me one more half mile. Just give me one more half mile. And then there was a, I got to where I was. I was getting ready to drop out. and Somebody I don't know, never saw him before. I've never seen him since. He was a big guy. He grabbed me, me by, I don't know, put it on his shoulder or arm, and he helped me. And with him and some other help, I got I, I got there through the night, and uh, the next day. But uh, it, that was tough because I couldn't. I was I was ready to drop out. I, I, I just couldn't go anymore.
1: And and for our listeners. Uh Tell us what that would have meant if you would have dropped out. You would have been left for dead, or oh, well, that was they might
4: shoot me, or, or mm-hmm. to make sure I wasn't playing games with them, and uh, so that uh, no, they did not. have frozen, I had my feet were already frozen. I couldn't, I couldn't go anywhere. You know. So you thought that was it? Yep, that was as close as I've ever come. And, and,
1: and a desperate prayer was answered in a, a big, strapping fellow American who. Right. And who knows?
4: Who knows who he was, huh? I, know, I don't know. Never saw him. It was in the middle of the night, and, and he, I didn't ask him. He, bawled, he, he saw me stumbling and heading for the edge of the column and grabbed me and says, hang in there. And, and we, the two of us stumbled along. You, you've seen it
1: in the movies, and that's the way it is. And I've had so many prisoners of war uh, repeat to me the, the POW motto, of we help those who can't help themselves and there was someone who helped mm-hmm. you when you couldn't help yourself how many times over the years have you thought back to that when someone needed help from you uh, I've been there mm-hmm and I can still I can tell it's still powerful for you and I certainly understand why so you made it through that night
4: yeah well yeah we worked all that night and then the next day and then they finally let us start give us a rest you <laughs> know some of us were in a schoolhouse. Some of us were in a church, a barn, whatever. Because there, there wasn't any facilities. It was just where you could flop. Mm-hmm. And we spent that night there. And then the next day, they, we were in a little town called Gerolstein, G-E-R-O-S-T-A-I-N, or, uh, something like that. And mm-hmm. they loaded us on boxcars at, at that time.
1: And this is the famous 40 and 8? Mm-hmm. 40 people or 8 horses, but I'm sure they stuck a lot more than 40 in there. 60. Uh-huh.
4: You couldn't... You had, what you did, you sat down with your knees up, and then the guy got behind you and his back to yours was the same. And if you got into that position, everybody got in that position, you could all sit down at one time. Otherwise, you couldn't.
1: And you probably needed that for some body heat, too, right?
4: It, well, the body... The heat comes from the manure that was in the boxcar. There was about 8-10 inches of manure in the boxcar. And uh, us city boys didn't know how many BTUs there were in a pound of horse manure. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was because the next day a uh, couple guys when they, they would let us out to t- relieve ourselves and, sure. and there was no water so we'd get, be eating some snow and uh, a couple of them asked if they could Shovel this stuff, out, the manure out. Well, man, when you that part where the car where these jokers got rid of the manure was frozen, just like the. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Never thought you'd be wishing for horse manure. No, huh? uh, no. And this this sounds like a a miserable existence. I mean, certainly the uncertainty could eat you alive. If not the the freezing temperatures and and just the agony of really not having any sustenance? and,
4: and uh, We hadn't eaten. When we got captured, we hadn't eaten for two days. They just had to bring the, the chow up to us because when we were by ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, that the, the jeep didn't get there for two days before we were captured. Mm-hmm. So we still didn't have anything to eat until, well, I guess it would be the second day, they give us a loaf of bread for five guys, mm-hmm. one of their— Brown breads that make out of
1: sawdust sawdust, sawdust. tree flour yeah <laughs> It's time for our first break but when this special Christmas edition of the program continues another survivor of the Battle of the Bulge who experienced his own personal Christmas miracle. Hometown heroes will be right back after this. Hey, do you ever have those moments where you realize you've been settling for less than the best for way too long? Sometimes we just accept the status quo without looking around for better ways to do things. And I got to tell you, when it comes to your money, I think I've found a better way with EECU. Just take a look at myeecu.org and I think you'll see why. EECU is not a bank. It's a not-for-profit credit union that's all about taking care of you, the member. That's one of the reasons EECU just keeps growing and growing. Over 350,000 members now in 12 different California counties and access to more than 30,000 co-op ATMs and free online and mobile banking. What I love most is how EECU always goes above and beyond to serve the community. A decade ago, the leadership and generosity of EECU helped establish Central Valley Honor Flight. By the end of this year, more than 1,800 veterans will have seen their memorials in Washington, D.C. for free. And that's just one example of the community involvement that EECU takes oh so seriously. Pick up the phone and become a member today. 1-800-538-3328. That's 1-800-538-3328.
0: Proudly presented by Provident Payments, this is Hometown Heroes. Celebrating everyday Americans who answer the call of duty.
1: Welcome back to Hometown Heroes in a special edition, perhaps adding to your perspective this Christmas with some memories of what our men and women in uniform went through at Christmas time during World War II. The Battle of the Bulge is synonymous with this time of year. In fact, one of the most often retold elements of the battle was how the prayer that General Patton ordered a priest to compose was answered with newly clear skies allowing for air support to intervene during the siege of Bastogne. All told, the Battle of the Bulge would claim 19,000 American lives and see more than 47,000 wounded. One of those Purple Heart recipients was Dick Reiber of the 82nd Airborne Division.
5: Christmas Day, we had the the uh, ground around there was frozen about six inches, four, four to six inches deep. Yeah. At that time, I had uh, been uh, transferred to carry ammunition for a 60-millimeter mortar. All right. And it came in big cardboard tubes with a tape around it. Right. Well, you should have been able to grab a hold of the tape, and if you got it right, you could zip it off and take the co- tube apart. Some of the boys didn't uh, seem to grasp the exact mechanics, or the tape was old. Or frozen. Or both. (laughs) All three. (laughs) And they were just dumping those to one side because they couldn't get the cap off. I said, here, let me take care of that. And I got out my little pocket knife with a little short stubby blade that I use for cutting things. Mm -hmm. And I'd zip down through that tape and grab the end of it on the point of the blade and rip it off and had to ammunition really we heard this jerry machine gunner up there and we could hear the bullets going overhead and the lead gunner for that mortar says hold it a minute i'm going to re-aim this entirely by sight or sound i don't think he could see anything but entirely by sound i believe he reset the aiming of it you know they lean it back and forth to aim it yeah and then they on the tail end of it, there's charges, different charges. And they can take and leave most of them on if they want the project to go a long way. Right. Or they take most of them off if they just want to get it just barely in front of their people out in front of them. He reset the mortar, reset the charge on the shell. He dropped two shells down the barrel of that thing. You take it and drop it down. When it hits the bottom... It autom- it's like a shotgun shell in the bottom.
1: Right. It,
5: it hits a firing pin, and it goes off. And he dropped two, waited a couple minutes. We never heard any more from that gunner.
1: Mm-hmm. So even blind to where that, that position that, was. That guy was a miracle.
5: I mean, he, he was just had a touch for
1: it. That, that is impressive. And I, I never did learn his name. So that uh, there's another situation where if he doesn't miraculously pull that off, you guys might have been sitting ducks for that German machine gun? Egg. Yes, yes. You mentioned how frozen the ground was. Had you ever dealt with cold like what you encountered there?
5: Not not really. I had de- dealt with some cold up in uh, South Dakota. Right. It gets cold up there.
1: But I bet you had better sleeping arrangements in South Dakota than <laughs> at the Battle of the Bulge. Quite a bit better. Where'd you have to sleep at the bulge? In my foxhole. How'd you dig a foxhole? You went out and dug it for yourself. Even through the ice? It
5: so happened that the few times I did dig a foxhole, we were back in the woods a little bit, back in brush, Mm -hmm. and the ground doesn't freeze as hard back there. All right. And, in fact, it was uh, a few days later we'd uh, taken a good uh, march for quite a few hours at night, and we'd gotten uh, into this other area and dug in. And about that time, I saw this uh, happen. One of our armored groups came through this little town over there, following the road. They couldn't uh, make any progress if they got off the road because of the ground being frozen partway and they just enough so they'd sink in and couldn't... uh, Get out of them.
1: The tanks would get stuck?
5: They'd get stuck. All right. They got out, just out by the edge of town, and a jury gunner, somebody over there, spotted him. He uh, zeroed in. He'd already zeroed in on that area. Mm-hmm. So he knew just, just how to shoot his gun, and he knocked out the lead vehicle. Then he knocked out the last one that he could see in that line, and then he could pick the rest of them off to suit himself. That was Hogan's Task Force 400. I I don't think I'll ever forget
1: that. So you... I saw that. You were watching this, and it's just devastation. It's just sitting ducks.
5: It that like I would be uh, a a field around here, away from it. We were in the edge of a grove of small trees.
1: So just, we're talking 100, 200 yards, something like that.
5: It might have been a quarter of a mile.
1: quarter of a mile. Yeah. But you're watching this, and there's nothing you can do about it. No. And Americans are getting killed left and right.
5: And we couldn't tell where the gunner was that was doing the shooting at them. Mm-hmm. But those eighty eights that they had were were really a, a, a nasty piece of artillery. How yeah. did you handle that? What
1: What did that do to you to see that?
5: I wasn't really getting a close-up, so it didn't uh, uh, penetrate quite as much as if, if I'd been closer. But just seeing those vehicles get shot, I couldn't tell whether there were people in them. By the time the first uh, first one got hit, well, they would have uh, evacuated the vehicles; they'd gotten out of them because they knew they couldn't uh, get away. And I don't never did be, uh, hear how they did make out as a group, except that they had gotten pretty well shot up.
1: That can't make you feel too encouraged about your own future or prospects of getting out of there alive
5: well funny thing but i guess i just wasn't uh, didn't have the emotional setup right that i would uh, worry about it so much
1: maybe that's a good thing it
5: either happened or it wouldn't happen as i said the next night we uh got to move to a different area going out of a little village there in fact that's where i saw my first volkswagen Oh yeah! In that little village, (laughs) and there was a hill there. We climbed that hill. I was carrying the machine gun ammunition for a thirty-caliber light machine gun, and then, all right. And I got down in the snow, and didn't get far enough down in the snow. I don't know whether if I'd have had my face clear down in it, whether or not I'd have been that shell fragment would have missed me completely or not. I don't think so.
1: Before we get more into that, let me take you back to Christmas Day. And I, I know you just said you didn't have the emotional makeup to think, oh, I might not make it and worry about all that. But on Christmas Day, when you're out there freezing your rear end off and the enemy's shooting at you, I imagine there had to be a moment where you thought, boy, it would be nice to be back home in the States with my wife. Yes. And something tells me there, there's probably been a Christmas or two in the 70 years since that you've thought back to that Christmas.
5: There's been a few.
1: What do you think yeah. of when you think back to that Christmas? I think
5: that, uh, I think my life has been, uh, watched over.
1: Did you feel it then? When you were out there in combat, did you feel that, that God was th- looking out for you? I, I felt
5: it probably. It was, uh, beyond my worry, beyond my, uh, uh, capability to do anything about personally at that moment, and, uh. For some reason or another, that worry just didn't get hold of me, and it didn't.
1: So now we're into January. It hasn't gotten any warmer. There's still snow everywhere and ice, and you're sleeping out in it. And on the 4th of January, as you said, you're carrying this machine gun ammunition. Boxes, metal
5: metal boxes with uh, belts of machine gun ammunition.
1: And had you guys been under fire before you got hit, or you didn't know this was coming?
5: We uh, had moved several times. We went through this little village. They had us lined up along down below it, and then we were supposed to go up there because they thought somebody uh, was up there to shoot at. I guess the one I was that I was near, they, they all spit out. I mean, we weren't one fifty feet around there. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And my machine gunner was up ahead of me, and I figured, well, in spite of that few Jerry shells going overhead. I saw two of them. Mm-hmm. In spite of that, if uh, he didn't uh, move out of there pretty quick, it'd be because he couldn't, and it'd be my turn to go play with the gun. Only thing was the Jerry was firing every 30 seconds, and the next one had my address on it. So here I was up on top of this hill, right? A lot of bush over that to, to that side of me, and valley down in front of me, more open landing in front of me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew I, uh, I was a pretty bad hit
1: when the, afterward. So you went to get down, you got to his position where his machine gun was. No,
5: I never got, never saw him.
1: You were heading his
5: way. I was, yeah, I was backing him up, waiting to see if he could get him some more ammunition. Right. He was supposed to t- call another box of
1: ammunition. Because if you took too long, that may cost him his life. If there's too long of a, a pause between his firing, he becomes more vulnerable. He does. So you're waiting to get him this ammunition. They start shooting at you? You tried I, to get I, down?
5: I, I What they were doing, mm-hmm. there was no am, no uh, small arms fire there. They were throwing shells over. 88s. Artillery shells
1: over. Uh-huh.
5: And they were going way over us. Right. Where I was. Unfortunately, they dropped one a lot closer.
1: So they're making the adjustment, and this 88 shell comes right in your area.
5: They they can drop those right in front of the gun itself if they want to. I was down on my knees and squatting yep. way down.
1: But a shell hits, and pieces it of per- it apparently
5: hit just close to me too, because the angle that these this scar was through is through my arm,
1: mm-hmm.
5: and the angle that this hit me.
1: So it hits your your right shoulder and the it right hit, side of your face.
5: It hit my arm right in here. Yep, your bicep, arm.
1: your right bicep and Out tricep, and the right side of your face.
5: And the right side of my face.
1: What did that feel like?
5: wasn't much feeling to it. It was just a big thunder, boom.
1: I mean, it like, felt like felt uh, like Joe Lewis slugging you in the face or something.
5: Well, it didn't really have any much feeling there. It didn't really have much feeling till later, till after it had... Uh,
1: did it stun you? Did it knock you out? I don't think it did,
5: but uh, I was only one around there for 75 or 100 feet. Mm-hmm. So I don't uh, have any uh, idea of wh- what else was.
1: So it hits you, and... I'm sure at some point you realize how bad it is. Well, after I spit that chunk of jawbone out, yes, I did. (sighs) So explain to us what it did to your jaw. Actually, it
5: took out a piece of the upper maxillary bone Mm -hmm. on the right side and opened a hole. I didn't know at the time, but later I found out it opened a hole into the right maxillary sinus. Mm -hmm. Then uh, I also got couple of holes through my upper arm here,
1: which were not really serious. And another piece of it, maybe an inch long, settled oh, in the left side of your jaw. No,
5: it went in here.
1: On the right side. stopped here. And stopped in your left jaw. Yep. And
5: it, it did crack the roof of my mouth. It separated the two bones that formed the roof of your mouth there.
1: Uh-huh. That and sounds like a bloody mess. Yeah. Were you scared?
5: I... Maybe. I, did. I don't re- really recall the uh, fear as such. Did you think you were about to die? I knew there was a good chance that I wouldn't find an aid man back there if I didn't get moving, but I could still walk. And I wondered a time or two how much worse that, uh, I would might have been injured if I hadn't been dressed for cold weather. Mm. I had on an undershirt, mm-hmm. uh, a knit undershirt. Winter, a wool shirt, a sweater, a combat jacket, which is similar to what they use nowadays as a combat jacket, and a wool overcoat. And that went through all of that to hit me there.
1: Yeah. Well, and even with your face, I mean, if it's well, an inch up, your eyes are gone, or your nose is gone, or both, right?
5: I, I was just, just, I don't know. Uh, I, I couldn't really. Uh, See, that it was, I felt a shivery fear.
1: Right. Oh, I'm just thinking now. I mean, how how fortunate, uh, not that I want to make light <laughs> of anything you've gone through for 70 years, but how much worse it could have been. Or if you hadn't gotten down at all, maybe it takes out your midsection and, and you die there. But as yeah. it stands, your face is blown open. You've got a wound in your upper arm, and you're leaving a trail of blood in the snow because you can walk trying to find an aid man. I found one.
5: Got back there, and uh, I think he gave me some kind of an uh, anesthetic shot. Morphine or something? I don't know what it was. Yeah. And the uh, next thing I remember is riding a
1: stretcher that was uh, anchored on the back of a Jeep. At some point, they had to wire your jaw shut?
5: They did. The funny thing was, they put those rubber bands on there. Two months later, after I got back to the uh, hospital in England, somebody gave me a pair of little scissors to hang on a cord around my neck to cut that in case I got nauseated.
1: How many years were you recuperating in hospitals uh, overseas and back home?
5: Well, I was injured in January of 45. It was in March, I believe. I finally went to work there in L.A.
1: March of what year? '47. So more than two years.
5: They'd do a little adjustment, tissue rearrangement, get it started healing, and then send me home
1: for a while. What's been the hardest thing to deal with, the most challenging impact on your life from that shell? Uh, that's a hard one to answer.
5: Sometimes it was just a case of putting one foot in front of the other, <laughs>
1: keeping going. I'm sure there were days where that was hard. Or maybe you didn't want to.
5: There have been days when I didn't want to get up.
1: What gave you hope? When when your face is blown half to bits and, and you don't know if it's ever going to be better, where do you find that hope to keep going?
5: That's uh, almost uh, an unanswerable question. Yeah? I can't pin it down.
1: It's just there somewhere inside you? I don't really know. I have uh, thought
5: about a few things like that when I... Didn't get to sleep in the early at night, but tomorrow is out there waiting to happen. Keep going, find out what it is. Well, if you want a statement of fact, I consider that what little bit I actually contributed to the war wasn't enough to brag about. I I didn't uh, wipe out an enemy regiment or even an enemy foxhole, as far as I knew, but I kept going.
1: Dick Ryber kept going, as did so many others during the Battle of the Bulge and throughout World War II. It's time for our final break, but when we come back, another Christmas miracle one decorated veteran witnessed in Italy and the power of a Christmas carol. Hometown Heroes will be right back after this. When times get tough and budgets get tight, a lot of businesses start slashing their marketing budgets, which all too often turns into a costly mistake. Instead, what if you could customize that investment to zero in on your target audience with surgical precision? And why am I saying what if? Because I already know you can with Search Strategy Marketing. It's not about how much you spend. It's about the strategy behind it. And Search Strategy Marketing is ready to prove it to you with a free, no-obligation assessment of your current efforts. Learn how to outrank your competition with a free, customized action plan just for Hometown Heroes listeners. Just go to HometownHeroesRadio.com and click on that light bulb logo for Search Strategy Marketing. It doesn't matter what your business is. Search Strategy Marketing can lead you to the best way to connect with your customers. So look for that. That light bulb logo today at hometownheroesradio.com and plug into the power that can take your business to the next level. Ever feel like that dollar just doesn't go as far anymore? Well, join the club. Actually, you really should join the club. I mean, join the more than 350,000 members of EECU, the not-for-profit credit union now in 12 California counties. Free online and mobile banking, more than 30,000 co-op ATMs, and not just fair, but fantastic rates on auto loans, mortgages, and home equity lines of credit. Go to myeecu.org to become a member today, or just call this number, 1-800-538-3328.
0: Honoring veterans from sea to shining sea, you're listening to Hometown Heroes with Paul Leffler, brought to you by this local station and its sponsors, and presented everywhere on the air and online by Provident Payments, one of the fastest growing payment consultants in America. Connect today at ProvidentPayments.com. Welcome back to Hometown
1: Heroes. Hard to believe another year is almost gone, and what a privilege it is to bring you these veteran stories on the radio, and I want to wish you the merriest of Christmases. We have a couple more Christmas time memories from World War II to share with you before our time runs out. Alvin Pate was a highly decorated soldier with the 91st Infantry Division. He earned the Silver Star and Bronze Star in helping to liberate Italy, and he witnessed something he did not expect on Christmas Eve 1944.
6: We had been uh, five miles in advance of the main line, uh, from Livignano and, uh, uh, the captain asked me, says, do you think you could take a of men? We'd been up there 30 days at that time, mm-hmm. back to Livignano. That was where the main line was and pick up, uh, letters and packages, uh, for our troops that are here. I said, well, I can sure try, sir.
1: Well, why don't you tell us what day that was?
6: <laughs> yeah. I took six men. Can you believe this is in detail?
1: And this was Christmas Eve, 1944, right? That's right.
6: Uh-huh. So I thought the Germans may have thought more about Christmas than we thought they did. <laughs> because as we advanced, the snow was about hip deep or a little more, and I'd been leading the, the, with the six men until the Germans, they closed off in front of us. And uh, I, uh, I told my men, I said, form a skirmish line. If you're familiar with the skirmish line, that's you spread out to where each one has a field of fire. Right. Okay. When the Germans seen us do that, they opened up just uh, apart, and we went right on through. They didn't even fire on us, and we went through to Livignano, and we were loaded with mail and packages and things going back for our uh, company, which was 200 men, you know. But, you know, we formed a skirmish line when we were them closing off in front of us. They opened up and let us go right on through
1: now, how close would you say you were to the German soldiers? How far away were they? A matter of feet? Maybe fifty yards. Uh huh. They
6: backed off and let us go right on through them.
1: Did you, you make know? eye contact with anyone?
6: I think no. They didn't fire nothing on us, and we didn't fire at them. But they let us go right on through with all that mail and packages. Now, if they'd have started opening up on us, we'd had mail and packages scattered all over because we'd have had to be firing, right?
1: <laughs> you probably had would have had you laid out on the snow dead too. <laughs> yeah. So I tell that a lot, because I thought that
6: was kind of funny, you know, because uh, maybe the Germans thought more about Christmas than we thought they did,
1: huh? Yeah. Well, what did that mean to you when you, and I, I assume, well, I, I imagine that after the war you probably reflect on that, and, and maybe this Christmas, and every Christmas you reflect on that. Did that tell you that this was about more than the hostilities, more than one man trying to kill another, and that there there was a common denominator, even though you're on opposite sides of that conflict?
6: Well... The see when we were uh, in advance of the main line, four or five miles yep. uh, from Nano the GIs they always nickname everything. They called it the uh, Gobbler's Knob. All right. Okay. They nicknamed the Gobbler's Knob, but uh, then Nano itself was nicknamed by the Germans Liver and Onions. <laughs> <laughs> but, anyway, uh, uh, I came through. Two hundred eighty-eight days of it, and uh, uh... I was the only boy in our family. And some someone said, "Well, you could have got out of it because you were the only man in the family." Right. I said "No, I didn't want out of it. I got in it. Only way I wanted out was to win, you know, win the war and get it over with."
1: And I imagine I've I've interviewed a lot of guys who lived through the Battle of the Bulge. I I know how cold that winter was in nineteen forty-four. But I imagine that Christmas of 1944 was probably about as memorable a Christmas as you've ever had.
6: I think so. I really think so, because I think we always heard that the Germans didn't believe in Christmas and stuff like that. That made me think they knew more about Christmas than we thought they did,
1: don't you think? Even in wartime, Christmas means something. That was Alvin Pate. And the last memory we'll hear today comes from Don Cooley, another one of those Golden Lions of the 106th Infantry Division who was captured during the Battle of the Bulge. Do
7: you know why they called that thing the Battle of
1: the Bulge? Why don't you explain it for us?
7: Well, you have to visualize the result. And that is the Germans pushed in, and they pushed in right where we were, right in the middle of it. Somehow we got energized, and it was also uh, the forest. So the Germans said, well, why mess around with you? We'll just go around them. And so that, they went around us and uh, took uh, 6,000 prisoners from our division and went around us, and they were headed for Antwerp because That was what the Allies needed so badly to get supplies up. And they made this huge bulge in the battle line and were stopped, fortunately, and that's how it got its name. Uh, The press, you know, called it, this is a bulge, and that's what it is.
1: Yeah, and you said, fortunately, they were stopped, but that came at a heavy, heavy cost— in American lives, and I'm interested in those few days now before your life really changed. So, you said you get there at uh, December 11th, the Ardennes Forest. What was your job, or what did you understand your duty to be?
7: Well, I was a battalion clerk. When we moved up, the battalion commander was in the Siegfried Line. We were at, at the Siegfried Line, which were these big cemented casements they built after world war 1 and it was the headquarters for the battalion and so my job was was working with him and doing the morning report and all that sort of stuff and so we were moving forward we went we advanced forward but the Germans were were there and in fact the unit i was in the immediate group of men, uh we didn't fire a shot because they are regimental Commander uh, notified that we were to uh, give up, break up your rifle, and it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon in December, it gets dark at uh, that, and so uh, the Germans were in such a hurry to uh, come and infiltrate and take us prisoners because of that, I think, that uh, they didn't search us very Closely, and I had a baby brownie camera in my coat How I happened to have that with me at that time, I don't know. But I've got that
1: yet, and I'll show it to you. Well, and and some of the pictures that camera took, you still have. They're incredibly well preserved, and we'll put some of those up at hometownheroesradio.com. But I'm trying to understand what it must have been like for you. You're not quite to your 21st birthday. It's just a couple weeks before Christmas. You haven't even experienced combat yet, and you're being told before you guys even put up a fight, you have to surrender.
7: This, this... particular location in the forest mm-hmm. where
1: we were, yes. And that was the 423rd Regiment, is that right?
7: That's correct. So Headquarters Company, 423rd.
1: Headquarters Company, 423rd mm-hmm. Regiment. So, how did that compute in your head? I imagine that had to be kind of hard to swallow or come to grips with.
7: Oh, we were just PO'd. <laughs> You now, for God's sakes, the on of get us keep moving, keep moving back through their lines where they had soldiers coming up some horse-driven vehicles, and here we are, a long chain of
1: prisoners. And you know, for those who are hearing this for the first time, maybe they're saying, "Well, why did they have to surrender? Why did their commanding officers give that order?" Can you explain that?
7: Yes, I think I can. They wised up to the fact that they were completely cut off from the 3rd uh, Regiment of our Division back at St. vith This was agreed, Uh, and we were out of communications with some of them. Uh, They did it as, uh, I'm sure, it was just to save lives.
1: That's what I really wanted to know. Because of the positioning of the German troops, had your regiment tried to fight, it would have just resulted in more lives lost, and whoever was left standing would end up prisoners. But there was no hope of breaking out of that and reconnecting the lines.
7: That's what these uh, uh, regimental commanders had, uh, decided. In my company was the son of our regimental commander. You can you imagine how that would make him feel? I think that was a bad mistake for the Army to have a, a relative uh, under the command of a top general.
1: So he took the brunt of all the criticism he, of his father? Uh, he
7: broke down practically. Mm. He was older.
1: Well, what about you? How did you handle this? Because I'm sure you never anticipated it when you were going overseas.
7: Of course not. Of course not. We just handled it because it happened. And fortunately, there were several of us who were good friends that were together. And so we were all just terribly disappointed. I know that doesn't sound strong enough, but, uh, you know, we're young kids.
1: Well, and and now you know with 75-plus years of hindsight what the next few months would be like for you. But do you remember at the time trying to figure out what kind of future you were looking forward to?
7: No, I know. I, we were just trying to keep dry because it was rainy and the snow was melting that day. And feet were probably wet and cold and we were hungry.
1: And what did the Germans do with you?
7: They marched us for uh, two days. They put on a train that had brought soldiers up to the front. These were boxcars, these 40 and eight, forty 40 men and 8 horses. Uh I guess is what that came from. And so uh, three or four days later, they got us into these trains and locked the doors and started
1: east. Did you have anything to eat during that time?
7: Yeah, I think we had, uh, usually it was potato soup. I had kept in the pocket of my big heavy overcoat uh, a D ration, which is chocolate bars, which is the smallest volume, more energy than anything that we were issued. Not by the Germans, and I just had, had it with me because... The last couple of days, we were on foot in the forest and not not back in the uh, cement headquarters. Then once we got on the boxcar, my notes would tell when we got food or didn't. But I think each day, we got potato soup or something. They opened up and gave us a little and probably poured it into our steel helmets to drink out of, which we had used for other things (laughs) while... Sequestered in the box car. <laughs> my job as a uh, battalion clerk, I happen to have in my pocket another blank sheet called a morning report where you list the names of everybody. And so I passed this thing around the boxcar and had everyone sign it that was in there. I think there were 60 of us then. The third day, we were strafed and uh, because the boxcars were not labeled. I and mean, these were, if we think, British plays. So they opened the doors and we got out to dive in the ditch. Yeah, it was cold by then. But the point I want to make is that they did Run along this train, long train, and open up the doors when uh, the, the strafing occurred. The trouble is, strafing's over before they could get to two or three cars.
1: And when you say these box cars aren't labeled, what you're saying is, if oh, they had it, said POW on the the top, Red of the, Cross or a Red yeah, Cross, yeah. then the planes would have known not to shoot. That's right. But they don't know.
7: They don't know.
1: And so you guys are helpless inside this boxcar, and if they don't open the doors, you're going to have a lot of guys die.
7: That's right, or you hope that pilot is a bad shot. (laughs) Some guys took off at that point and didn't come back to the boxcar.
1: Did you think about trying that?
7: Not a bit. Why not? Well, I think it was because if I had thought about it, I think I would have uh, nixed it because... I think it was the fourth day into Germany, the third or fourth. That's a pretty long way to get back through the lines. So you knew. you've no if, food.
1: And wherever you're going to be, it's German-held territory. So the, the likelihood of you getting through all that and back to American territory is rough. And are you getting pretty hungry by now? Yes. Are you getting scared?
7: No, I don't think so. We were with friends. That helped so much.
1: Well, and you said you you celebrated your 21st birthday in a boxcar. I don't think that's how most young men imagine spending their 21st birthday. Well,
7: I wouldn't interview very many people with that question, but I think I know the answer, so I don't need to.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Did it occur to you that it was your birthday? Did you mark the occasion? Oh,
7: sure. Oh, sure.
1: The day after Christmas. Well, I guess I should ask you about Christmas, too, then,
7: huh? Well, there was a significant thing. We started singing... Christmas carols in the boxcar, and I get emotional about that. There was another fellow among our group, had a good voice and knew the words, but pretty soon other people chimed in, and the irony, of course, is that that's a German carol, Silent Night.
1: So you're somewhere in Germany, you're prisoners, in a boxcar, freezing and starving.
7: Well, we weren't freezing in there. From that standpoint, we were better off than the soldiers that didn't get caught. It got down to the coldest winter to date there in Germany, and we were sheltered. And that was something to be thankful
1: for. But here you are, 60 GIs, singing Silent Night inside a boxcar?
7: Yeah. Well, it was Christmas.
1: How did it sound?
7: They didn't sing Happy Birthday to me the next day, but I don't think I told them anyway. (laughs) (laughs) They might have. You know, what what do you do? You're just there all day sitting on your duff and chatting. Because we were in that boxcar for nine days.
1: Well, I imagine you've probably heard Silent Night hundreds of times in the years since then.
7: Sure. Wonderful song.
1: Can you listen to it now without thinking of that boxcar on christmas 1944 no, no and what do you think about when your mind goes back to that moment with those oh, guys I
7: cloud up
1: you might be the only one from that boxcar who's still here
7: it's very possible
1: well, i'm not trying to put words in your mouth or make it more than it was but i can sense just from your description and your emotion that this was a real powerful moment for you
7: oh yes
1: what did it do for you
7: Made me feel better, probably.
1: Gave you a little sliver of hope. And also,
7: it it was another bond with the others who were singing with us, which we needed at that time.
1: A little bit of hope goes a long way, especially in war and especially in captivity. And hope, ultimately, is what Christmas time represents. So I hope it permeates your home this holiday season and on into the new year. Thanks for listening to Hometown Heroes today. I'm Paul Leffler reminding you again that
0: freedom is not free. To let Paul know about a veteran in your life, visit hometownheroesradio.com and click on Suggest a Veteran. Today's program has been brought to you by Provident Payments. Give your business the edge only their personalized service can deliver at providentpayments.com.